0: Section 6 of Europe Revised. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe Revised by Irvin S. Cobb, Chapter 3: Bathing Oneself on the Other Side, Part 2. Listen, I said, you will kindly pardon the ignorance of a poor, red, partly damp American who has shed his eagle feathers but still has his native curiosity with him why not put a third button in that bathroom labeled "manservant" or valet or towel-boy or something of that general nature and then when a sufferer wanted towels and wanted em quick he could get them without blocking the wheels of progress and industry we may still be shooting mohawk indians and the american bison in the streets of buffalo new york and we may still be saying by jehoshaphat i swan to calculate anyway i note that we still say that in all your leading comic papers but when a man in my land goes a-toweling he goes a-toweling and that is all there is to it positively in our secret lodges it may happen that the worshipful master calls the august sword-bearer to him and bids him communicate with the grand outer guardian and see whether the candidate is suitably attired for admission but in ordinary life we cut out the middleman whenever possible do you get my drift oh yes sir he said but i fear you do not understand me as i told you it's very simple so very simple sir we've never found it necessary to make a change you ring for the waiter or for the maid and you tell them to tell the man-servant all right i said breaking in i could see that his arguments were of the circular variety that always came back to the starting point "'But as a favor to me, would you kindly ask the proprietor to request the head-cook to communicate with the carriage-starter, and have him inform the waiter, that when in future I ring the bathroom-bell in a given manner, to wit, one long, determined ring, followed by three short, passionate rings, it may be regarded as a signal for towels?' So saying, I turned on my heel and went away, for I could tell he was getting ready to begin all over again. Later on I found out for myself that, in this particular hotel, when you ring for the waiter or the maid the bell sounds in the service-room, where those functionaries are supposed to be stationed, but when you ring for the man-servant a small arm-shaped device like a semaphore drops down over your outer door. But what has this man-servant done that he should be thus discriminated against? Why should he not have a bell of his own? So far as I might judge, the poor fellow has few enough pleasures in life as it is. Why should he battle with the intricacies of a block-bell system when everybody else round the place has a separate bell? And why all this mystery and mummery over so simple and elemental a thing as a towel? To my mind, it merely helps to prove that among the English the art of bathing is still in its infancy. The English claim to have discovered the human bath, and they resent mildly the assumption that any other nation should become addicted to it. Whereas I argue that the burden of the proof shows... We do more bathing to the square inch of surface than the English ever did. At least we have superior accommodations for it. The day is gone in this country when Saturday night was the big night for indoor aquatic sports and pastimes, and no gentleman as was a gentleman would call on his lady-love and break up her plans for the great weekly ceremony. There may have been a time in certain rural districts when the bathing season for males practically ended on September 15th owing to the water in the horse-pond becoming chilled. But that time has passed. Along with every modern house that is built today in country or town, we expect bathrooms, and plenty of them. With us, the presence of a few bathtubs more or less creates no great amount of excitement. Nor does the mere sight of open plumbing particularly stir our people. Whereas in England, a hotel-keeper who has bathrooms on the premises advertises the fact on his stationery. If, in addition to a few bathrooms, a Continental hotel-keeper has a decrepit elevator, he makes more noise over it than we do over a Pompeian palm-room or an Etruscan roof-garden. He hangs a sign above his front door testifying to his magnificent enterprise in this regard. The Continental may be a born hotel-keeper, as has been frequently claimed for him, but the trouble is he usually has no hotel to keep. It is as though you set an interior decorator to run a livery-stable and expect him to make it attractive. He may have the talents, but he is lacking in the raw material. It was in a London apartment-house, out made of Vale Way, that I first beheld the official bathtub of an English family establishment. It was one of those bathtubs that flourished in our own land at about the time of the green-back craze, a coffin-shaped, boxed-in affair lined with zinc, and the zinc was suffering from tetter or other serious skin trouble and was peeling badly. There was a current superstition about the place to the effect that the bathroom and the water supply might, on occasion, be heated with a device known in the vernacular as a geezer. The geezer was a sheet iron contraption in the shape of a pocket inkstand, and it stood on a perch in the corner like a Russian icon, with a small blue flame flickering underneath it. It looked as though its sire might have been a snare-drum and its dam a dark-lantern, and that it got its looks from its father and its heating powers from the mother's side of the family. And the plumbing fixtures were of the type that passed out of general use on the American side of the water with the Rutherford B. Hayes administration. I was given to understand that this was a fair sample of the average residential London bathroom, though the newer apartment houses that are going up have better ones, they told me. In English country houses the dearth of bathing appliance must be even more dearthful. I ran through the columns of the leading English fashion journal and read the descriptions of the large country places that were offered for sale or lease. In many instances the advertisements were accompanied by photographic reproductions in half-tone, showing magnificent old places, with Queen Anne fronts and Tudor towers and Elizabethan entails and Georgian mortises and what not. Seeing these views, I could conjure up visions of rooks cawing in the elms, of young curates in flat-hats imbibing tea on green lawns, of housekeepers named Meadows or Fleming in rustling black silk, of old Giles, fifty years, man and boy, on the same place, wearing a smock-front and leaning on a pitchfork, with a wisp of hay caught in the tines, lamenting that the all hasn't been the same, zur, since the young marster was killed riding to Owens and then pensively wiping his eyes on a stray strand of the hay. With no great stretch of the imagination I could picture a gouty, morose old lord with a secret sorrow and a brandy breath. I could picture a profligate heir going deeper and deeper in debt, but refusing, to the bitter end, to put the axe to the roots of the ancestral oaks. I could imagine these parties readily, because I had frequently read about both of them in the standard English novels, and I had seen them depicted in all the orthodox English dramas I ever patronized. But I did not notice in the appended descriptions any extended notice of heating arrangements. Most of the advertisements seemed to slur over that point altogether. And, as regards bathing facilities in their relation to the capacities of these country places, I quote at random from the figures given. Eighteen rooms and one bath. Sixteen rooms and two baths. Fourteen rooms and one bath. Twenty-one rooms and two baths. Eleven rooms and one bath. Thirty-four rooms and two baths. Remember that by rooms bedrooms were meant. The reception rooms and parlors and dining halls and offices, and the like, were listed separately. I asked a well-informed Englishman how he could reconcile this discrepancy between bedrooms and bathrooms with the current belief that the English had a practical monopoly of the habit of bathing. After considering the proposition at some length, he said I should understand there was a difference in England between taking a bath and taking a tub, that though an Englishman might not be particularly addicted to a bath, he must have his tub every morning. But I submit that the facts prove this explanation to have been but a feeble subterfuge. Let us, for an especially conspicuous example, take the house that has thirty-four sleeping chambers and only two baths. Let us imagine the house to be full of guests, with every bedroom occupied, and, if it is possible to do so without blushing, let us further imagine a couple of pink-and-white English gentlemen in the two baths. If preferable, members of the opposite sex may imagine two ladies. Very well, then, this leaves the occupants of thirty-two bedrooms to all be provided with large tin tubs at approximately the same hour of the morning. Where would any household muster the crews to man all those portable tin tubs? And where would the proprietor keep his battery of thirty-two tubs when they were not in use? Not in the family picture-gallery, surely. From my reading of works of fiction, describing the daily life of the English upper classes, I know full well that the picture-gallery is lined with family portraits, that each canvassed countenance there shows the haughty aquiline but slightly catarrhal nose, which is a heritage of this house that each pair of dark and brooding eyes hide in their depths the shadow of that dread nemesis which, through all the fateful centuries, has dogged this brave but ill-starred race until now, alas! The place must be let, furnished, to some beastly creature in trade, such as an American millionaire. Here at this end we have the founder of the line, dubbed a knight on the gory field of Hastings, and there at that end we have the present heir, a knighted dub. We know they cannot put the tubs in the family picture-gallery. There is no room. They need an armory for that outfit, and no armory is specified in the advertisement. So I, for one, must decline to be misled or deceived by specious generalities. If you are asking me my opinion, I shall simply say that the bathing hammock of Mary England is a venerable myth, and likewise so is the fresh-air fetish. The air an Englishman makes is that he mistakes cold air for fresh air. In cold weather an Englishman arranges a few splintered jackstraws, kindling fashion, in an open grate somewhat resembling in size and shape a wall pocket for bedroom slippers. On this substructure he gently deposits one or more carboniferous nodules the size of a pigeon egg, and touches a match to the whole. In the more fortunate instances the result is a small reddish ember smoking intermittently he stands by and feeds the glow with a desert spoonful of fuel administered at half-hour intervals, and imagines he really has a fire, and that he is really being warmed. Why the English insist on speaking of coal in the plural, when they only use it in the singular, is more than I can understand. Conceited that we overheat our houses, and our railroad trains, and our hotel lobbies in America, nevertheless we do heat them. In winter their interiors are warmer and less damp than the outer air which is more than can be said for the lands across the sea, where you have to go outdoors to thaw. If there were any outdoor sleeping porches in England I missed them when I was there. But as regards the ventilation of an English hotel I may speak with authority, having patronized one. To begin with, the windows have heavy shades. Back of these, in turn, are folding blinds, then long, close curtains of muslin, then, finally, thick, manifolding, shrouding draperies of some air-proof woolen stuff. At night-time the maid enters your room, seals the windows, pulls down the shades, locks the shutters, closes the curtains, and draws the draperies, and then, I think, cocks all the cracks with oakum. When the occupant of that chamber retires to rest, he is as hermetic as old Rameses I, safe in his tomb, ever dared hope to be. That reddish aspect of the face noted in connection with the average Englishman is not due to fresh air, as has been popularly supposed, it is due to the lack of it. It is caused by congestion. For years he has been going along, trying to breathe without having the necessary ingredients at hand. At that England excels the rest of Europe in fresh air, just as it excels in the matter of bathing facilities. There is some fresh air left in England, an abundant supply in warm weather, and a stray bit here and there in cold on the continent. There is none to speak of End of Section six.